each one of us will inevitably give our power to someone or something else. That was um, kind of a, a guiding theme at a clergy retreat that I just came back. I was away for about a week. Uh, every year, the clergy in the diocese uh, must do a retreat. It's largely a silent retreat, but interspersed in the silence, we have uh, these two fantastic uh, pastoral guides, um, PhD in psychology, and they're really guiding us and helping us through prayer and meditating what it means to follow Jesus. And I, I pastor you all, but I also need to receive, I need to be pastored as well. And so it was a really a wonderful week. But that guiding theme, that line, in one of the discussion groups, really um, uh, not only touched my heart, it challenged me, and it really rings true. That each one of us, in a sense, is invited to make a choice on who we give our power to. Um, that's part of what makes us human, we'll do that. For some of us, we choose our careers. Our career, our vocation has a final say on my life. No matter what other decisions I make, they're guided and shaped by this um, primary commitment. So it can be career, it could be family, it could be your partner, it could be your children. It could be things like money or influence, power, prestige, you name it. At some level, each one of us makes a decision of who we give our power to. Or in other words, who has uh, the final authority in our lives. And I think that's one of the main reasons why, as a church, we decided to um, end the season of creation with today, the day of Sunday of Christ the King. Because as Christians, we affirm that Jesus isn't just a petty lordling of some distant land, but that Jesus is the king of the world, indeed the king of the universe. And therefore, if you follow him especially, he's the king of our lives. And that has ramifications. And we began exploring the ramifications this whole season, but we landed on one of the most uh, difficult to hold on to last Sunday when we talked about the judgment of God and how he will come one day to the earth to judge the living and the dead. And we sort of talked about that. You can listen to the sermon online from last week. But a natural question comes up when we talk about the judgment of God, namely... Well, who's to say that Jesus has the authority to judge us? Right? Why would he really have the final say? And that's what I want to explore today. Um, if anyone's keeping track of time, just give me a mark of 10 minutes just so we don't stay here for an hour. Uh, seriously, that'd be helpful. Um, but uh, but I want to, what I want to address is three things, right? Just so we have a clear understanding of what we're doing today. Uh, one thing we have to acknowledge, the first one, is that we have a problem with authority. We have to be honest about that. And yet we also, that's first, and yet we're going to discover that we actually need authority. So it's a necessary part of the human experience. And then finally, that we should trust Jesus the King. That's going to be the move today. Right? We don't like it, but we need it. And Jesus is the best authority. Right. First, we don't like it. And this is the easiest one. Less than five minutes. Because it's true, no one, no one likes to be told, you know, I mean, I, you know, if you have kids, if you're a parent, I mean, you end up telling your kids what to do. And I still have visceral memories of me being a kid and being told, go clean your room, and I'm like, I don't want to, you know, say it, because that would have been, uh, that would have been problematic in my household when I was growing up. 
But in your heart, like, I don't want to do this. And you do it anyways. And my poor daughter right here, she knows. She has a cleaning date maybe today. But, um, but you know, no one likes to be told. And you get older, and the world is full of rules. You know, you go into the workforce, maybe you have a boss. You have people, you know, above you that at some level have a say in your life. You don't escape that. And I don't think anyone's really like that in human history. But as we've been exploring this past season, modern Western people, we have a special flavor of resisting um, authority. And it's not that as a uh, historical. I mean, we're, we're Canadians. Yes, in our money, we have uh, the monarchy, right? And there are monarch, you know, monarchy groups in, the, in, our, in our community. But really, that's kind of more of a vestige of a bygone age. We're a democratic nation where the hope is that everyone has a say. We're all meant to be treated equally, right? This is the, the guiding myth of our country. The individual is prioritized in a free democracy over and above the collective desire. So if the collective desire is, we want to do X, you have a right as a private citizen to say, well, I deny that. I want Y. And I should have a voice, even if I'm in the minority. Especially, actually, if you're in the minority, you should have a voice over and against the larger group. That is the modern distinctive that has not been the norm for most of human history, for more humans ever. But it's part of our culture. And it's, it expresses itself not only... Uh, on that wide scale, but those tr that understanding of ourselves expresses itself in our very lives and how we think of things. It's a, one of the most common truisms that you'll hear daily if you have these conversations is, um, well, you know what, you have your own truth, I have my own truth, and let's just explore, explore our own truths. And as long as we're not hurting each other, I have my version of right and wrong, you have your version of right and wrong, and let's not tell each other what to do. Right? Does that sound... Odd to you? No, that sounds very normal. I want to tell you, that would be extremely weird in almost every other culture in recorded history. But here, it's like, oh yeah, of course. Common wisdom. And we part why we, uh, we uh, endorse that way of thinking because we don't want someone telling us, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and you should do this thing. And so we have embedded in our very way of existing together a block to an authority. So we don't like it. That's the whole point. I don't think I can belabor it. We accept that. All right, so there it is. But notice that's going to be a problem if you're a Christian, especially, and you're saying Jesus is king. Those don't work well together. Problem. All right, so we don't want to be told to do, and yet we need it. Why would I say that? Uh, there's a social commentator um, that said something that really stuck to me. Uh, he said... He was giving a talk, he was receiving an award uh, at a university, and um, he said this, I'm going to paraphrase it because he did give a whole talk, but an insight he gave was this. He said, we're living in a world today where they're trying to convince you that the way that we talk about ethics is in terms of better or worse, and they're trying to get rid of right and wrong. And he said that is incorrect. Uh, at the fundamental level, things aren't better or worse. There are right and wrongs. And he said, if, uh, if you believe, if you really absorb the idea that the only ethics we can talk about are better or worse, it's like uh, you're a mouse and you're put in a maze, and all you're going to do is follow the cheese. But the people who know that there is fundamentally a right and a wrong are the mice that when put in the maze will realize they're in the maze, and they're going to work to get out. What is he saying by that? Well, I think what he's trying to say is, there's a sense in which, yeah, there are things in this world that are better or worse. 
You can't deny that. For example, I'm, I'm a fan of soccer. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. And there are better ways to play that. There are also worse ways to play soccer. It's a game with rules and there's strategies. And so there's a better way to play. You can train yourself. But the game of soccer is, um, has no moral valence. It, it is, in the end, as much as a fan's end, a game. Right? And there are other things in life that are better or worse. There's a better way to bake a cake versus a worse way, etc. I think. But there are things that aren't better or worse. Right? For example, um, we could say, I'm going to go to an extreme to keep it under 20, we could say it would be better if we just killed off all the homeless and poor people and people in hospitals who are sick and aren't going to get really get better, take a lot of money. Let's just kill them all off and that would be better for the rest of us and our finances and really balance things up, right? Is that better? Oof, no, you suddenly feel like hitting somebody. No, that's wrong. Which they said, even if that technically works out for the budget, that's horrible to think that we're just going to kill people because it's better for this undeclared majority. Okay. And then you start realizing, oh, well now we're not talking in terms of better or worse, now we're talking in terms of right and wrong. And what that, that gentleman receiving the award was pointing out is that we do run in, at a fundamental level, we'll run into these places where we can't deny that there's a right and a wrong. But if you do deny right and wrong, you think, no, no, it's better or worse, you do you, your own truth, then it's like the mice in the maze chasing the cheese, which means you're going to be guided by the pressures and spirit of the age. And that's been true throughout human history. Not that long ago, it would have been very normal to say, ah, people of color, I mean, I'm using that term, that's anachronistic, but you know what I'm saying. Ah, they're not really people, and they don't deserve the right to vote until they're educated to a space of maturity. That was a very common thing to say not that long ago. I'll put five decades, but people still say it today, by the way. But it was a dominant way of thinking. And if you don't challenge right and wrong, you just go by the pressures of the age, you're like, oh, yeah, well, it's okay to be racist. And now today, what's all the rage is being anti-racist, which I endorse, by the way, because racism is actually wrong. It's my conviction. Yours too, I hope. But for some people, it's not that. They're just going along with the spirit of the age. And so today they're going, oh, are we all not racist anymore? Okay, so I'm against racism too. Great. And what happens in a couple of decades when racism is right back in the middle of our culture? Guided by the cheese. In five decades, let's say. Five decades, let's say. I hope not, but it could happen. Racism is cool again. Oh, are we all racist now? Okay. My poor children and grandchildren. <coughs> right? You'll just be guided by the winds. But if you have an authority, if you have an understanding of right and wrong, then when the tides of the spirit of the age change, you won't be guided by that. You'll know what's right, you'll know what's wrong, and hopefully you'll have the courage and your convictions to stand against the cheese, whatever that is. You'll, you'll get out of the maze. So this idea that you do you, your own truth, whatever, that doesn't, that's not convincing. That's a platitude that we enjoy during cocktails or coffee with friends, that doesn't really connect in the real spaces where we have to negotiate our humanity with each other. It doesn't work. We actually need an authority. Because there are things in this world that we do want to say that's wrong. That's got to stop yesterday. But which authority? Natural question. Who? 
Because the truth is, there are a lot of voices in this world who would actually say yes to what I've said right now. Yes, there is a right and wrong. And my authority is the one that undergirds it. You know, enter some institutions, maybe in a dictator, <coughs> right? Or a cultish religious leader, you name it, right? People can walk in, yes, of course there's a right and wrong, and the right thing is to do what I say. And the wrong thing is to believe contrary to my beliefs. And I think at its best, that's the reason why we also have an antipathy towards authority, because we can say, well, Seth, we have people recorded history that have abrogated themselves as authority, and what they do is they pull out the sword and they wipe out populations by thousands of millions, and they establish their way of doing things. And that's part of the problem that we see with the notion of fixed categories of right and wrong is that they can get used. Right? That's the problem. And that's actually not a bad point. Because human history is littered by the powerful, right? What's the other common saying? Might makes right. And that has been a defining feature of our history as a human race. So there's a problem there. Well, I want to say that some things are right, and there's definitely things that I want to say this is wrong, but then when I enter this realm of honesty, it leaves me vulnerable to people stepping in and saying, well, I'm the authority, and then using my good desires to manipulate me and to meet the world into an age of fascism, of oppression, and suffering. And I think because that's real, that's why God came to this world. Right? Because the whole journey that we've been on this past year, and the one that we're going to enter in Advent, is that as Christians we believe that God, seeing us in our broken misery, didn't stay away, but he entered into the story of humanity, into human history, and comes to us. And he didn't come, notice, king of the universe didn't enter human history as yet another powerful king and dictator. He came humble. He was born into a very poor family, right, in a manger. Part of an oppressed people, and a very uh, in a journey of humility and love, showed us the way to connect to God. Right. And so Jesus, in his whole life, explained to us: you see authority and kingship this way, and that's a very broken and twisted way to view it. Jesus would say, "I agree. I'm showing you what it means to have authority." I'm showing you what it means to be king. And I'm not some emperor with swords. As the reading said, I'm a shepherd. A shepherd who takes care of my sheep. And elsewhere, Jesus says, and I'm a shepherd who gives, I give my life for the sheep. So Jesus is the king, the humble king, who by holding power shows that he's trustworthy to have it. He does not lord it over us. In fact, he's gentle and he welcomes us into his family, into his life. If only we'd accept that. But he is a king. So in the fullness of time, he will, as the reading says, separate the sheep, sheep from the sheep. Right? Those intuitions that we have that some things are right and some things are wrong, he will have the final say. The Bible says it will be a moment of such clarity and truth that says that all mouths will be closed. No one will stand there after hearing his judgment and be like, that was unfair. 
possible. His judgment will be true. Whatever is said of all of us will be true. It will be shown to be true. And either we'll accept it and receive his judgment, or with the devil and his angels resist it to the bitter end. That's the choice we get to make. That's heavy to hold, though, right? That's still not easy. I was listening to um, an interview this past week. Um, it's a podcast that I follow. It has um, it's a psychological twist. They have people who talk about you know, contemporary medicine, psychology. That's interesting to me. And um, they had this uh, professor on. It was Professor Drecker. He's a professor of psychology at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. And he, this professor, a uh, very, uh, very interesting fellow. Uh, he was describing how when he was, uh, him and his brother, when they were kids, seven, nine years old, they came to the, the parents brought them to the Rockies and they had this um, beautiful experience that I mean, we might take for granted, but in the mountains, and they sort of saw the beauty of it and they were in awe and it transformed their lives, even as children. And over the years, they traveled the world together. They were the closest and best of friends. And he was sharing that uh, not too long, a couple years ago, uh, his brother uh, passed away from colon cancer. And so he saw his brother suffer very terribly and then die, and it uh, broke his heart, his mind and his heart. And he went entered a dark season of not being able to make sense of the world, just alone. And part of the way that he um, was able to get out of it, I mean, he's a trained academic, is that he, connecting to his brother, um, decided to do a, a, a thorough analysis of awe. And he actually wrote a book about it, titled Awe. And um, because he knew intuitively that a sense of awe, of the wonder of this world, has a, not only healing properties, but it's one of the best things that humans can experience. But he had to do the work. So he spent several years, him and his team, uh, they interviewed over, um, they collected over 2,600 stories across 26 countries, uh, ranging from India, Mexico, Poland, you name it. And they put all the stories together, 2,600 stories, and then the team, they basically categorized them, what kind of stories they were. Um, and they, he derived what he calls a list of eight sources of awe. And Arnie and I were talking about that yesterday. These are the eight sources. I'll, I'll, I'll try it. So here, one was nature. Two, private spiritual practices. You know, you sit down and read the Bible or you pray. Um, there was also music or visual design. You see a painting or a beautiful car. Um, collective effervescence. So getting together to sing songs or chanting or something togetherness. Uh, another one was, uh, what was the other one? Well, well, the final one would have been spiritual beauty, uh, moral beauty, acts of courage and things like that. And so when you gave the list, I just gave you some of them, I guess. He sort of asks, which do you think was the most common across all these cultures and people? I guessed clearly nature, right? Sunrise. And uh, I asked Arn, I think he said nature too, down in New York. I wonder what you think. Would you say nature? Or what would you say about it? Maybe music. The host chose music. She's a trained uh, cellist, so that really moves her. So yeah, nature, music. Those are the safe, safe options. And then he goes on to reveal that actually the number one source of awe across all these cultures that they got by far was moral beauty. Seeing people um, 
self-sacrifice for the other, for love beyond what you would say, you and I might say, beyond human ability. Right? It made me think quickly as he was talking um, of a story that I, I learned not too long ago about this family, um, no names, I guess, uh, this young boy, and um, boy and girl, the boy was around uh, seven years old, little girl was around four years old, and a uh, little girl had a medical condition. Uh, it was serious enough. They apparently go to the hospital, and but the medical staff let them know, well, we can deal with this. It's going to be a, a blood transfusion. So thank God Mom Medicine ran to take care of that. And the brother was actually uh, a fit. So the, the doctor comes to the, 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 the boy and says, uh, would you be willing to uh, give your blood to your sister? A blood transfusion. They explained what it was. And blood transfusion. And when they had asked him, the little boy sort of paused for a moment, and he says, Yes, yes, I will do that. And so, you know, they set him up in bed and plug him in and all that. And the, the parents are there, the medical staff is there, and the doctor comes in, the nurse, and then the little boy apparently uh, sort of grabs the doctor's hand and very quietly asks him, uh, Is it going to hurt? And the doctor didn't understand because the doctor was set up, and so he asked him, Is it, What do you mean, is it going to hurt? And then the boy said, Is it going to hurt when I die? quiet, as if they realized what had happened. The boy hadn't understood what a blood transfusion was. He thought that he had been asked to give his life for his sister. And when he was asked, he smiled about it and said, yeah, I will die for my sister. And what a beautiful child. What a great brother she had who grew up with him. And that moves me every time I think about that. It really moves me. Moral beauty. Um, Dr. Uh, Professor Drecker's point in his book, at least the way he describes it, is that um, while not everyone gets a chance, the privilege that we have to live in the mountains, for example, or to see beautiful vistas, but we all have a chance at some level to be around each other, not only to witness moral beauty, but also to be that person that loves someone beyond limits. And, to move, and by doing that, by loving other people, to inspire those around us, that's very available. And so he was saying, that's good. And I agree. I think that's a really good point. But then I started thinking, now it makes sense why I think when Jesus came to the world and he brought his disciples, his friends around him to start, you know, his movement, he didn't say, hey guys, let's go on a hiking trip. Let's go see the ocean. Let's go see nature. He didn't actually say that. In fact, one of the few recorded moments where he takes his friends into a mountain, which would have been beautiful, I'm sure, he goes up to the mountain and he says, now look at me. Don't, don't worry about that. Look at me. And he transfigures, you know, lightning. Look at me. Which might sound self-aggrandizing, but really he was saying, look at me. Look what I'm about to give. I'm about to give my life for you. In fact, for the whole world. That you might be healed and cleansed. And that if you come to me and you accept me as your Lord and Savior, my life is your life. I'll, clean, I'll cleanse you of all that's broken. I'll put you together. What we sometimes call psychological integration, spiritual wholeness, that is yours. I'll give it to you. I'll awaken you to new life because I am the king of the universe. I can do that. Every other king is, is make-believe. I'm real. And he proved it because when they murdered him, the kings of the age, when they murdered him, he didn't stay dead. He came back from the, from the grave. To a new life. 
What king could ever say that? Only one, Jesus, who doesn't lord it over us, but in humility and love is our shepherd. He loves us. He loves you. He knows your life, all the mistakes you've made, all the mistakes I've made, willful ones. And he's not trying to shame you at all. He accepts you. He loves you. That's why we're here today, to celebrate Jesus, the true king, who comes to us in grace and love. And it's through him that we can say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's wrong. But we're going to work to fix that. Not out of self-righteousness or our confused ethics, but because we trust in the true king. Amen? That's today. So I hope that you're thinking about that, you're processing that. We're going to learn more about his kingship in the next few Sundays as we make our journey to his birthday. And I hope that you're with us every Sunday as we explore what it means to follow Jesus, the rightful king. But for now, we're going to pray. We're going to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. So let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks and praise that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our messiness of our lives, God, where we're often hurt and yet also often are the ones that are hurting others, that you come to us as our shepherd. And yes, you do judge. But your judgment is a, is a judgment of mercy and grace, discerning. You see the parts of our lives that we want to do good, and you also see the parts where we can't really do it, and you help us, you heal us, and you make us your family. God, we thank you for that. That you're not only our friend, but you're also your king. And you guide us to truth. God, I pray that you would do that every day for us. Help us in our weakness. This we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.